0: A few years ago I was driving up 95 and I saw a billboard that said the world's gonna end. Here's the date and here's the time. Billboards cost money, but somebody felt like it was worth it to put that up. The Left Behind series sold 65 million books, spawned four movies and a series of video games, but the wrinkle is that there was a large group of people who weren't reading it as fiction. Not that it had already happened, but that this was a reasonable approximation of things to come. There are a lot of people who think that the world is about to end. This affects how people view climate change and environmentalism, may even be shaping foreign policy in major ways, but where did it all come from? If you ask people, they'll say Jesus Christ. A lot of it can be traced back to some cryptic statements in Matthew 24 and a few other New Testament places. So why did Jesus say this stuff? And what did it really mean? Stay tuned. that story in the intro about the billboard and driving by, but what I didn't add, which I should have added, is that it was on the day that the world was supposed to end. Like, I was seeing that billboard, like, at the time and date when the world was meant to end, but I was cool. I didn't get scared, maybe a little bit. We're going to talk about the end of the world today, in case you're interested in, in how long the world is going to last. And for some people, it's an obscure topic, but I have seen, I've heard people who actually make life decisions based on end-of-the-world stuff, and I really do think it's a factor in at least American politics, if not around the world, and there, you know, that family radio prediction, it's going to end May 21st, some of us, you know, we're laughing at that, but there's plenty of people who, who really bought into that and sold their houses, and just really, really mortgaged their lives, and then had to reintegrate because they, they didn't get what was going to happen, and so they they lost everything. It's a big deal. And it just creates this sense of, the, the idea that the world is going to end creates this sense of sort of fear, but also disposableness, disposability. Like, we, who cares what we do to the planet? Who cares what we do to each other? You know, God's going to wipe everything out. So most people would just say, well, it's, it's nothing. That's nothing because we don't... So what? There's some words written in the New Testament about it. We don't think that anyone actually said those. We don't think if Jesus existed, he probably didn't say those. So Most people will dismiss it. Uh, but as you know with Swedenborg, he takes the whole package and it re-explains it, and that's what we're going to do today. Longest intro ever. My name is Curtis Childs. I'm the host, I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, uh, and if you want to be part of this conversation about the end of the world, get your questions in right now. And it would, I didn't quite state that last point enough, because I was like, oh, I still I got to make these graphics appear, but what I wanted to say is, yeah, you don't have Swedenborg just saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter what Jesus said. He says, yeah, there, he was saying something, he was predicting something, but it's different than you think, and that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to begin in part one, the theological heart attack. So what was the prediction in Matthew 24? What is Jesus Christ? talking about. Well, a lot of people interpret this as the end of the world, but this is not just a modern Christian phenomenon. It's actually not even a Christian phenomenon. There have been predictions of the end of the world throughout history, but you don't got to take my word for it. Here's friend of the show and author Richard Smoley with a little close short history of the end of the world.
1: End Times predictions have been with us for a long time. Uh, they go back probably to prehistory. Uh, the first major religious figure to talk about something like end times in our sense was Zoroaster, And Zoroastrianism had a major influence on Judaism and Christianity. Now at the time of Christ in the first century AD, there was varying amount of uh, apocalyptic speculation because the Jews were in a very tight position with Rome. Uh, they and the Romans did not get along well. Everything was felt as if it was about to erupt politically, which it did. And so there was an intense series of end times expectations. Now, Christ's prophecies in Matthew 24 and uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21 uh, sound as if Jesus is predicting, one, the sack of the temple in Jerusalem, to be followed very soon by the end of the world. How Jesus saw those uh, is something that scholars uh, don't really completely agree on. In any case uh, these end times predictions were very very intense uh, in the first century of Christianity. In the second century they began to fade and you have very late New Testament texts like the second epistle to Peter which is, which is a response to people saying hey why hasn't why hasn't this end time come yet?" and so on, so on, so on. Uh, there's a website, I don't remember which one it is, that says, hey, um, here's a list of all of the years between AD 1 and now that have been predicted to be the end date. And uh, that list is pretty full. There are, not every year is in that list, but a lot of them are. So this uh, expectation has continued and uh, grown,
0: uh, and every age believes it's it's uh, the last age. So if you're worried that the world is going to end, just know people have been saying it's going to end for thousands of years, almost every year, but that does make the point that, that Matthew 24 and those other ones you mentioned has been confusing from the beginning to people. What what is Jesus talking about? And we're gonna this, we're gonna do what we do on this show, which is we're gonna take the Swedenborgian look at this stuff because Swedenborg has a lot to say about these words in Matthew twenty four, and they fit. They're actually a, you know foundation or a fulcrum for many of his large ideas. The the phenomena that Jesus is describing here, and he says that Jesus was right on, and actually the events have happened and are happening. So. We're going to get into what that means, and it's complex, and if this is your first time, sorry about that, but we're going to go through a lot of stuff. Jesus was not predicting, according to Swedenborg, the end of the world, but he was predicting the end of the Christian church. Doesn't sound so exciting, sounds too strange. Hold judgment. We're going to explain what it is and why it's so important. To begin to lay the foundation of why does it matter if the Christian Church ends it. And, and also, like, with the Christian Church is still going. It's not over. So a lot of mysteries we introduce there, and we're going to slowly, hopefully, unravel them, and if not, you will have wasted an hour. Uh, so this is foundational stuff. We have to talk about how, for to set up why it's important that a church would end or not end, uh, we have to look at how interdependent all levels of humanity are. So this is Swedenborg's book, True Christianity 119. You can click this, download that book for free, courtesy of the Swedenborg Foundation. Read the thing for yourself. To the Lord, the entire angelic heaven along with the church on earth is like a single human being. Now notice I said church, and he said that Jesus is predicting the end of a Christian. Church. Um, Swedenborg uses that term church in this number and everywhere else in a more expansive sense than you would think of. And you're familiar with this if you've seen this show at all or you've read Swedenborg. He's, what he's really talking about is uh, a level of consciousness, a, a way of accepting what is good and what is true, and, and a way of, through that, connecting to the divine or what's higher. And he's talking about, on a broader level, this is, you know, all the, a, a sort of a... Um, epoch of human spirituality, a mindset, a way that God keeps connection with the Earth through a particular way of thinking and, and feeling that people have at the time. That's what he's talking about in this church. It can be as small as an individual person, it can be, you know, millions of people, they all wor- work as a single church if they have the same sort of goals and heart. So that's the, that's the short explanation. So he's not just talking about an organization. Okay, where was I? The angelic heaven constitutes the inner level of that person. The church constitutes the outer level. To be more specific, the highest heavens form the head of that person. The second and the lowest heavens form the chest and midsection of that person's body. And the church on earth constitutes the person's body from below the waist to the feet. Don't worry, diagram ahead. The Lord himself is the soul and life of the whole person. If the Lord had not brought about redemption, that person would have been destroyed. The loss of the church on earth destroys that body from the waist down. The loss of the lowest heaven destroys the digestive area. The loss of the second heaven destroys the thorax. Then the head loses consciousness because it has no relationship with the body. Sorry, I was laughing, imagining this was your first exposure to Swedenborgian thought because there's so many weird layered concepts there. And we will sort it out with a diagram as we do. We'll look. Let's look at some fractal humans. Why don't we? Uh, Swedenborg has this concept um, that... All of heaven taken together looks like a single person. We did a show on that. We've looked at that a lot. Uh, We have a diagram here for you. Uh, He goes into a little more detail here, though. He says, on a larger scale, all of the goodness in humanity functions together like a single person. The highest heaven is like the head. You know, it's what's really seeing things. It's making decisions. The second and lowest heavens are like the upper body, and the church on earth, meaning not just an organization, but that thing inside people, that forms the legs. However, this human form is scalable to all levels of reality. So when you just look at the church on earth, all the goodness in the human race, it in itself could be viewed as a human. There There are different roles we all play that answer to different parts of the body. However, even within that, there is this specific body of knowledge that Swedenborg often refers to also as the Church. But this is a group of people who have the complete divine revelation. Whether or not they understand it, they possess that. This is people making an effort to know God based on that complete revelation. The rest of the body has all kinds of other revelation that has plenty of truth in it, but it is not this one particular thread that that sustains everything. So Swedenborg talks about these churches like the heart and the lungs. Um, So this is what we're starting to set up. There's a group of people that, whether or not they know it, doesn't mean they're better people than other people. It's just because they possess a certain kind of truth that they are like the heart and lungs of the human race for the rest of us. So they, they don't do everything for us, but they allow us to continue to exist. They are sort of this channel by which God connects to earth. And often, Swedenborg would say, those people were not even the best people in the world. They're not the nicest, uh, but they're performing a role, and even though everyone can go to heaven, we need them. So you're starting to set up the importance of this very specific church within the human body, um, and if that's in trouble, we're all in trouble, all right? So after, so in the earliest church, that whole revelation that I was talking about, and look at our Check out our show, um, the spiritual history of the human race, because that gets to this whole dynamic of why are we following uh, this particular progression. Anyway, um, that earliest church was the 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 truth in it. There was no book; it was all direct experience. You know, you were having dreams, where you were learning things. You had this angelic experiences, much like people who have a near death experience or something today. They have this direct experience. That was the ancient church most ancient church. But after that, when that started to crumble, people began first turning to religious authorities, which is fine as long as those religious authorities don't become corrupt. But more on that later. Let's look back at True Christianity 119. When the church on earth dies, the lower heavens also disintegrate. That is interesting to me. You have a heaven uh, coming apart Swedenborg says, yeah, when the church on earth dies, the lower heavens also disintegrate. The reason is that the heavens consist of people from the world. When there is nothing good left in the human heart and no truth from the word, the heavens are flooded with evils that rise up. They are choked by them as by the waters of the sticks. Nevertheless, the Lord hides good spirits somewhere else and preserves them till the day of the last judgment and lifts them into a new heaven. So that is probably, that last judgment... That's probably what you came here to learn about, but we're not talking about the Last Judgment today. I mean, we, we are, we're touching on it, but Swedenborg wrote like eight volumes on this subject, okay? And the Last Judgment we're going to get to, today we're talking about the internal meaning of Matthew 24, all right? And Swedenborg makes the claim that what Jesus is predicting in Matthew 24 is a heart attack uh, for humanity. The end times is this heart attack for humanity. Now, to learn more about this heart attack, we actually can look at the the normal phenomenon of a heart attack. Because, like I said, that human form scales throughout all levels of reality. Well, even on the most basic level, each one of us, we are an image of everything. So in the heart, We have an image of that same church, or that same principle, in our heart and lungs. So if we look at what happens to one of us when we suffer a heart attack, we can actually learn about this phenomenon, according to Swedenborg. All right. so here is our friend Dr. Ed Higgins talking about uh, what it is when the heart attack happens, and that it's not necessarily as sudden as you might think.
2: So when most people think of a heart attack, they think of that boom, like quick sudden event, that the, that final event seems sudden, but it actually is this much longer process. Some people get a warning during that longer process, some people don't. So when the heart muscle loses its blood supply completely, that area, that heart muscle dies. But it usually happens from a longer process of very slowly plaques build up. It's something, the medical term uh, being an atheroma. It's a plaque, a little deposit, that, that starts blocking that artery. The artery has a lumen, like an open area. Slowly, one of these things builds up in there. Fatty deposits, it sometimes becomes calcified, it gets hardened. And that's, we all know, diet, exercise, or things that will help, pre- uh, well, maybe at least slow that if not fully prevent it. But one of these plaques builds up, it gets large enough that, that at a certain point, it's blocking that uh, blood channel, that um, lumen of an artery. And then if it blocks it partially, during certain stresses, the artery will contract enough that now it's completely blocked. That's not necessarily a heart attack. That's, uh, people will get symptoms from that that uh, doctors call angina pectoris. Angina gives you that, that pain like a heart attack, but then when that the uh, artery opens up to its full length again, now I can get blood through. Right? I have a partial blockage, the artery clamped down, the blood's blocked for whatever reason. If it opens up again, now the blood flow is restored, now the muscle's fine. If I get complete blockage, that's when I have the infarction. I've now completely cut off blood supply to that muscle. That muscle dies.
0: So we don't want that muscle to die. We don't want it to die in an individual person. We don't want it to die in the human race as a whole. And So the, so we got to look at this heart and, and how can it be protected and what causes these kinds of um, disease to creep into it. Each age of humanity had, as I was saying, this different church that acted as the heart and lungs in it. And in Matthew 24, Jesus was really talking about the heart attack for the Christian church, but all these churches ended with a similar kind of heart attack. So here's a, a little history of the revelation from the human race. So. again, really check out our show, The Spiritual History of the Human Race. We we pilfered some of this graphic from there. But the earliest church, as I said, had this direct experience of God. The ancient church had something Swedenborg called the ancient word. This was a book, like like the Bible is today, but it was different. It had different subject material, and it actually dissipated and kind of spread into a lot of ancient cultures. Swedenborg said uh, hieroglyphics had their basis in the the knowledge of correspondences. He said that the ancient word is still existing somewhere in, in Asia. So it's it, it went out there, maybe permeated some other traditions, but it did break apart. And then you had, and watch the show I just mentioned if you want to know why does it then follow the, the Abrahamic traditions. But for this episode, I will just move forward. The Israelitist Church had what is now called the Old Testament or the Torah, and this dictated by this angelic voice sometimes that would imperial hill prophets talk about that. And then the Christian Church, had Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, what is now called the New Testament, the things that were written about Him. These are all different churches. They all had their end, except in Swedenborg's time, uh, he said the Christian church was ending. So that may come as a surprise to you, but what does he mean? Obviously, there's there's still churches, but let's talk about the underpinnings of that, and are we in a post-Christian world? Uh, are even Christians post-Christian at this point? All right, and the one last note about that is that it's important to have this church that possesses this revelation, because thought brings presence. You see our show... I can just spend this whole time referencing past shows. See our show, How to Travel in the Afterlife. In the spiritual world, the more you're giving attention to something, the closer you become physically to it in in uh, in location. So if you don't have people who are thinking about God in some specific ways as God exists, then that that eliminates this pull between God and the human race. So you've got to have people thinking those kinds of thoughts. That's what keeps us together. So you really got to keep that intact, Um, but the bad news is it doesn't always stay intact, and we're going to look more about this in section two. All right, so he's... uh, When Jesus says the things that he says in Matthew 24, he's talking to the twelve disciples. And every detail in the Bible, according to Swedenborg, is a correspondence, it's a correspondential metaphor. So when he's talking to twelve disciples, if you see our show about numbers, you'll see twelve means all, and the disciples... Uh, being male, are a symbol of the, the, the faith in all of us, or the intellectual ideas in all of us. So Jesus is addressing every single person in this chapter in regard to what they believe is true about life, about the world, about spirituality. And so we're going to take you through the elements that he tells these disciples and see where do they show up particularly in this narrative of the death of the Christian church, but also individually, Swedenborg says there are multiple levels. We're just giving you a little slice. It's better than nothing. Come on, it's raining outside. Just stay, just stay and watch this. All right, so first he warns the disciples of, or he he early warns the disciples of false teachings. So this is Secrets of Heaven 3353, where Swedenborg explains what that means. He says, in the sentence, many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and lead many astray. The name does not mean a name, nor does Christ mean Christ. The name symbolizes a means of worshiping the Lord, and Christ symbolizes truth itself. So it means that people will come saying, this is what faith teaches, or this is true, when it is neither a tenant of faith, nor true, but false. So that, I, to me, that may not seem like an interesting wrinkle, but I, I think it is. that What you have there is it's not necessarily that people are coming and saying different things. It's, it's tying and it's misrepresenting what Jesus said. And I don't know if you've ever come across that, a person who is uh, act, saying that their actions are backed up by Jesus Christ, but it does not at all match the descriptions of him. That's what he's warning the disciples in the future Christian church about. Don't fall into these false teachings, meaning you say Jesus says this, but really he's not like that at all you know, like people get very warlike and say Jesus is backing it up. But you look, it's all this turn-the-other-cheek stuff if you actually look at what Jesus has to say. Moving on from that, we're going to go to a series of images. Jesus... Gives these metaphors to the disciples, and Swedenborg says you can unlock them with correspondences. So the temple is demolished. That's the first image that he gives to the disciples. So you have there the rubble of the temple. He says, Not one stone shall be left here upon another, that shall not that shall not be thrown down. So what's he talking about? According to Swedenborg, this is in the inner sense that heresies would tear apart the truth Jesus had given to his apostles. So in a meta sort of moment, he's saying, hey, I'm giving you a philosophy of life. Uh, people are going to rip this apart in the future. People are going to misrepresent it, they're going to twist it, so that it no longer resembles at all the love that I'm that I'm advocating here. Jesus also speaks about wars. He says, you're sure to hear wars and rumors of wars. And because of this, a lot of people have, whenever wars pop up, said, hey, this must be the end times, this must be the end times, but there's always wars happening. This particular thing, Jesus is only talking about the wars that threaten the heart of the human race. In an inner sense, this is about arguments and disputes over the truth that are going to arise and pull apart the future followers of Jesus's message. And this, this didn't come true for quite a while, because there uh, was this basic... Um, Christian unity for, you know, a thousand plus years, there, there, were, there was this, hey, we're all going to work together, you know, we're all, we're all thinking relatively the same things, we all, for a long, long time that held together, but eventually there did begin to be schisms in the Church, and to help us, we have Dr. James Lawrence who is going to work us through a couple of times when things started to come apart for the Christian Church. So here's the first major division that occurred.
3: The first schism that comes along is the uh, schism of 1054. The, the one that we all know of as the breakup between the Eastern church and the Western church. Um, yet it's important to note that the Eastern church, as they, uh, they mutually pulled away from each other, still held to the same ecumenical council doctrines as the Western church. The breakup had more to do with power politics, very widely dispersed geographies, uh, and a time of history when it was very difficult to communicate across uh, distances. And, And having the East and West also being shaped out of very different parts of the world, speaking different languages the west comes out of uh, out of rome and is speaking latin and the eastern church speaks greek and came out of the great greek philosophical system which had a more um, uh, had a very different style of reasoning than roman law so the first schism that occurs in christianity Um, is still not really a schism around doctrinal uh, disunity, and there are no significant differences in theology between East and West.
0: So it was pretty amicable, and if you think about it in terms of this is the— leading into, though, an eventual heart attack for the church. I think about it like Ed was describing, the little builds up calcified buildup or plaque or something, so the artery doesn't quite let blood flow as well, and then when you when it begins to contract under times of stress, you're starting to get maybe this restriction of blood flow, but it's still pretty fine. I mean, people are they're not fighting each other, they're still trying to do what's right. Uh, Overall, there's still still kindness uh, between everyone. However, the next split is not nearly as, as friendly, actually, it, it gets downright nasty, and Jim is going to explain that and with the fallout from it, this is going to be a minute or two here, but we really want to drive this point home, so this is perhaps the fallout, this is the dying of the heart of Christianity, so we'll, we'll see it here.
3: The second great schism of Christianity was very different. The Protestant breakaway was, uh, was violent. Uh, Tens of thousands of people lost their lives. It happened also not with dispersed geographies, but on the same turf. Today, historians have uh, many different uh, uh, layered perspectives on what really drove the breakaway. Um, there's uh, a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of force behind uh, socio-economic theory, uh, where it was in the benefit of the Germanic-speaking populations to uh, be out from under the thumb of Rome. There are theories of psychology involved. As the modern age, we're now past the Renaissance and we're in the modern era of uh, sort of new styles of thinking, um, and there were psychological factors in play in the breakaway. But nevertheless, it is still undeniable that doctrinal disputes, uh, arguments over what was true theologically, were uh, were front and center uh, in the breakaway itself. And over the next 150 170 years, when tens of thousands of people lose their lives through burnings at the stake, through beheadings, uh, and through uh, through warfare uh, over uh, over faith issues, the deaths are directly attributable to differences of agreement in um, in doctrine, especially over the two sacraments of baptism and the holy City, uh, supper, how they're supposed to be practiced. And, uh, and over the nature of uh, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So the, the second schism involved this splintering of ideas uh, around uh, what scripture is, how scripture is to be interpreted, uh, what one can say about the living out of, of Christian faith, what is the role of Jesus Christ in a person's salvation, and what is the role of the church in a person's salvation? We're all being fought over in a uh, in a in a in a uh, very externally turbulent way, and that established what was known as the Protestant principle, which then moves into another phase of. Uh, of a tremendously fractured religious picture with Protestantism, the Protestant principle is that you can split away from the church on personal conscience, individual conscience, that you that an individual can know better than the church, and separate and start a new church and start a different church, and. And that is what happened with Martin Luther and what happened with Zwingli and what was uh, elaborated with Calvin. And then as the uh, 17th century and especially the 18th century, and then even more so the 19th century unfold, that Protestant principle continues to be uh, appropriated more frequently. Uh, Sometimes very small groups of people will disagree over uh, the interpretation of a part of the faith and and stand up as a block and say, we're out of here. And they begin another branch of Methodism or another uh, branch of Presbyterianism or a new frontier religion or new religious movements with whole new foundations like the Latter-day Saints. Uh, in the 19th century or Christian Science uh, with its key text uh, in the later part of the 19th century. So we have a, a, a dynamic and mechanism then in world Christianity where interpretations of what is true has now moved from this unity that was carefully cultivated Uh, in that first several centuries, was still held together even through the first great schism and therefore orthodoxy, uh, known with a small o, meaning especially Nicene theology, um, held together for a millennium and a half. Today, we have so many different approaches to what is true that it takes very uh, uh, massive-sized, multi-volume encyclopedias to cover the many ideas that are being claimed as uh, the best way to understand and live the Christian faith.
0: And as we'll see near the end, it's not necessarily bad to have that many divisions. However, if you remember back to what he was saying about the actual split between, uh, that got really bad, there there was, this is where this, the evil crept in, and this is where you have people are willing to kill each other brutally and, and in mass quantities over beliefs. That's where the Church begins to die, when there's not this love holding it together, where ideas take precedence over love. Because you believe thing X, it's fine for me to kill you. We got a problem here the heart is in trouble and that divided antagonist at christian christian culture is the one that swedenborg was around for i mean that's what he inherited from from this whole episode so that is part of why he dealt with so much drama in his, his spiritual experiences and in the, his life surrounding christianity and it, surrounding the um, the tribulation and the trials in it so jesus is predicting this death, or this this carnage to come, and he gives a few more images about it. First, he talks of, in Matthew 24, he talks about nation turning against nation. He says, nation will be roused against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, which if you know correspondences, you know, you got nation being uh, probably the intellectual side and kingdom being the will side. Um, and what Swedenborg says that means is evil will fight with evil and falsity with falsity. Oh, maybe I had it backwards. So, that is not that there's the good guys and the bad guys. It's everybody's worst coming out and clashing and leading to these things that James was talking about. He also, Swedenborg describes uh, famines and plagues, and this has a spiritual meaning as well. We've talked about it before on this show. No one will know about goodness and truth any longer. Goodness is spiritual food, and truth is spiritual water. So these are Correspondences. So, when you talk about in the text of the Bible, you talk about lacking water and food. It's talking about the spirit lacking goodness and truth. Swedenborg or uh, Swedenborg just discusses correspondences like that for all of these. So, Jesus goes on to say, and earthquakes in various places. So, you will get people when an earthquake earthquake happens in the world, they say, "Oh, that's it. That's a sign of the end times." But Swedenborg says this is actually talking if it's all about things within the church or within this mindset, the state of religion will therefore change. Because this is a this is a seismic shift. That's where we get that term from, is the ground underneath this underlying structure will break up change. And then if that wasn't drastic enough, there's like a much more drastic verse. A couple of verses after that. This is verses nine and ten. So we thought we'd have them read to you and then. Uh, the internal sense according to Swedenborg read to you as well so here's what it all means.
4: Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name and many will then stumble and betray each other and hate each other. Faith will be perverted denied and held in contempt by evil feelings there will be tremendous hostility toward Jesus Christ and His message, which will cause people to be tremendously hostile toward one another.
0: But what what kind of hostility is that? I mean, you you might say, "Oh, yeah, so people won't like Christians." Um, but the, it's a little more complicated than that, and we're going to look at it in a bit. But either way, everything is about states of mind. So, talking about you being delivered up, since Jesus is talking to all of us in regarding our or in regards to our faith. Our ideas about the world, as I said, your ideas about the world when, when this is happening will crumble. So Jesus goes on to, he, he's just like popping out a lot of warnings here. He talks about false prophets, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And he's, Swedenborg says that the meaning of that is the preaching of falsity and claiming God said it. Like that before, and you've, I've, I've, I've seen this, man. People say, oh, you know, Jesus says this, but he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say that at all. People doing that is detrimental to the whole mechanism. He talks about, uh, Jesus talks about the spread of wickedness, and because of the multiplying of wickedness, many people's charity will go cold. That is an increase in false doctrine and result in the death of charity. These uh, Get enough toxic ideas in there, like that... Uh, you know, some people are saved, and others are automatically condemned to an eternal conscious torment in hell. Eventually, you lose the love for your neighbor. You know that that kind of stuff can be really toxic. So, but you might also, when you're reading all this, say the Christian church is like this. there's plenty of goodness in there. Um, As we said, Swedenborg was in there in a very tumultuous time in the Christian Church, and when there was a lot of barbarism being committed by the institutions, and he, in his spiritual experiences, saw that there was a real problem within the members of his own community, which was this—the Lutheran tradition specifically, but overall Protestantism, and, and then in wider strokes, all of Christianity. There was a real problem there, and this is what he, how he saw it being uh, reflected in the spiritual side of things. His Secrets of Heaven, three, four, eight, nine. People in the church. Do not see that the church is like this. Like this meaning, lost all love and charity. Despising and opposing everything good and true, and harboring antagonism toward goodness and, goodness and truth, and especially toward the Lord. And if you know Swedenborg, when he says the Lord, he means Jesus Christ. So in a very strange twist here, he's saying that Christians ha- some Christians have great amount of hostility toward Jesus Christ. They go to church, listen to sermons, maintain an air of reverence while there, attend Holy Supper, occasionally talking with each other about these activities in a perfectly appropriate way, regardless of whether they are bad or good, and they live together in polite kindness or friendship. As a result, they never see any evidence of contempt, let alone opposition, least of all hostility toward what faith values as good and true or toward the Lord. However... These are the outward forms of conduct by which one person misleads another. The inward forms among people in the church are completely different. They are even diametrically opposed to the outward ones. The nature of the inward forms is vividly apparent in the heavens because angels pay attention only to people's inner depths or their goals, that is, to their intent and will and their resulting thoughts. Essentially, he's saying that there was a bunch of hypocrisy. People were walking around acting devout, smiling, but but behaving terribly, having bad motivations, trying to secretly accomplish bad things, all kinds of corruption. He's talking about his own church back then, the state of it, but... We can also be looking out for this in our own minds. We don't want to have... A, as I said, we're, we're an image of the whole process as well, so we want to make sure our spiritual heart stays healthy. We don't go through these same sorts of things, so always be, be on the lookout. Don't just think of it as us and them. You know, We want to stay vigilant and make sure we're not producing these kind of conditions as well. So This is where Swedenborg gets a little more into the spiritual experience side of things. Again, Secrets of Heaven 3489. Now we're in brackets 2-3. to three. The extent of the discrepancy between these and superficial appearance can be seen from people coming into the other life, from the Christian world. Okay, so we're leading in from something else, but he's saying, this is what a lot of people from Christianity are like coming into the other world. I've seen them in my experiences. No matter how peace-loving such people seemed in the world, in the next, it is clear that they hated each other, and also hated everything involved in faith. Most of all, they hated the Lord, meaning they hated Jesus Christ, the Christians. These particular Christians hated Jesus Christ. When anyone simply mentions him to their face in the other world, a palpable wave, not only of contempt, but even of opposition and antagonism toward him, pours from them and spreads outward even if they kept up appearances by speaking and also preaching reverently about him." So, even some preachers. "...the same thing happens when neighborly love and faith are mentioned. This is what they are like inside, and in the other world their inner form is as plain to see as it would have been while they were living in the world if they had been released and freed from outward constraints, such as the law, rank, wealth, or reputation. Without these constraints they would have attacked one another with mutual hatred. They would have robbed others without a single pang of conscience and butchered them, especially the innocent, again, without a pang of conscience." So really intense, but he's saying this is what was going on on a deeper level here. That There wasn't this love. There was a lot of talk about love, but there wasn't. And, and you know, there, there were people saying, oh, you know, Jesus is great but they were so actually opposed to the actual ideas that Jesus stood for, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, those sorts of things, that in the other world where all pretense is gone, they hate Jesus Christ. They hate that idea of it. So this brings us to this, the hostility predicted towards Jesus Christ. It came from two sides. One, you have sort of the People who are just like, oh, anything to do with Jesus is stupid. Mostly they had a bad experience with Christianity, or they're just, or they're like, I don't want anyone telling me to live well or anything. There's that side, but there's also from within the Christian tradition, people who may be very attached to saying the name of Jesus Christ, but they don't like what he actually stood for. They don't like his actual qualities, the love, the acceptance, the the, the be, being willing to sit with fringe mem- members of society and eat with them. They're, they don't really like that. They oppose that in life, and so in the afterlife, when things are clearer, they realize, oh, I, I hate Jesus. I don't, I don't like this thing at all. And that must have been shocking to Swedenborg to see, you know, people, maybe some of whom he know, making this transition to be completely what they were not. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he called it the the ruinous abomination or the abomination of desolation, he talks about in Matthew 24, this really like, um, intimidating phrase. He's saying that that's the state of the mind of the church, of the Christian church, in this instance, when, when God in character is rejected. And the Christian church fell especially hard because it had seen what God was really like. Back into these more ancient churches, it was a little more cryptic. You didn't really know. You think about like in the the Old Testament, it's a little more like, who is God, what is God? But Jesus was very clear. This is what I'm like. This is what I value. So to see that and reject it is very serious. I mean, that's like, there's no, okay, well, they didn't understand it the first time. That's like, you're getting rid of the whole thing. Swedenborg said, when that took effect, when there was no real love left in the church, when there was no charity, when there was no truth, it was then called the abomination of desolation, just causing all this problem in the world. Secrets of Heaven, 3488. 8. We're starting to get into a couple of little more hopeful notes in Jesus' speech. He's now talking a little bit about uh, some people who make it. But those persisting to the end will be saved symbolizes the salvation of people who love their neighbor. Those persisting to to the end mean those who do not let themselves be led astray, who do not give way in times of trial. So it's not like everybody goes down with a ship here. People and who, who makes it, people who actually love their neighbor, and people who persist in trying to do that. Now, it doesn't mean when it says, you know, don't fail at this, it doesn't mean if you run into despair at certain points, like, oh, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I can stay in love, this triggered me, I lost my temper. That doesn't mean you didn't persevere. Uh, Despair is actually a part of the spiritual growth process. Growth process, according to Swedenborg, you have uh, these temptations or these trials that lead to despair, it's just a part of things. But if you continue over the long run to move in that direction, you're doing well. The, the turning aside is like I don't care. I don't want to do this anymore. And he ends. Uh, we're going to end this section on an even more hopeful note, which is that even as things are crashing down theologically and there's all this division, there is this good, this natural good for just the love for the human race in, in a secular way that is growing up. You you see that happening. Um, and this is Swedenborg describing it in Secrets of Heaven four two three one.
4: From the fig tree, though, learn the parable. When its branch becomes soft and the leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Symbolizes the first stage of a new religion. The fig tree means earthly goodness, the branch means its emotional effect, and the leaves mean true ideas. The parable they were to learn from means the existence of this symbolism. Whenever the word mentions a fig tree, on an inner level it symbolizes earthly good. A branch symbolizes its emotional effect because emotion stems from goodness as a branch forks from its trunk. These remarks now reveal the thrust of the parable. When the Lord creates a new religion, what appears first of all is earthly good, or a superficial form of good, with the emotion and true ideas that accompany it. So also when you see all these things, know for yourselves that the time is near at the doors, means that when these effects appear, the age will close, the last judgment will occur, and he will come. Consequently, it means that the old religion will then be rejected and a new one established. The text says, at the doors, because earthly goodness and its truth are the first traits instilled into a person who is being reborn and becoming an individual church."
0: So it wasn't just like this whole thing was going to crash and everyone was going to go. There was even even while it's crashing, even while it still is, you sort of still see it crashing, uh, there's this goodness. This just like, okay, apart from theology, how do you love, how do you do good things? That's like the fig tree growing. So. This There was this prediction of this big cataclysmic thing happen, but can you make it through safe? And if so, how do you? Jesus does give you, hey, here's the instructions to stay safe. And that's what we're going to look at in part three. Again, we're going to be looking at symbolism here, and Jesus is giving this advice in symbolism to the disciples, and this is caused for a lot of different interpretations, but here we have a look at, through the language of correspondences, what does this mean and how does this help you survive this theological heart attack that we've been talking about? The first, Jesus talks about mountains. He he says that then those in Judea shall flee into the mountains. So that might sound like, okay, great, there's something going on in the province or in the city or the valley. I'll get up into the mountains, you know, but there's an inner meaning. Mountains are consistently a symbol of love. It says people in the church will rely on the Lord alone and accordingly on love for Him and charity for their neighbor, you've seen us talk about this many times. Mountains are a symbol of love. Fleeing to the mountains is when this doctrine stuff, when these structures are breaking down. Go to love. Go to love and make that your your baseline. Because even if people have differing ideas, and some of us are like have a little more right in in one area, others have right in the other. If we're going for that love, we survive. Meaning we don't turn to hatred, which is spiritual death. So. Why, though, is Jesus talking so cryptically, right? If he had just said, oh, stay in love if there's theological disputes or something, wouldn't that have saved a lot of problems? Well, like everything that God does, there was a good reason for it. And there's actually a couple of reasons why this cryptic thing happened. First was sort of a categorical intellectual reason, and Swedenborg describes this in Secrets of Heaven 3652. He says, each and every mention of the people of Judah and Israel in the Word represents the Lord's kingdom in the heavens and the Lord's kingdom on earth, or the church. This is why Jerusalem never means Jerusalem, and Judea never means Judea in an inner sense. Instead, they were something that could, and did, represent the heavenly and spiritual qualities of the Lord's kingdom. This made it possible for the Word to be written in such a way that people reading it on earth could grasp it, and the angels present with them could truly understand it. The Lord spoke in the same way for the same reason. Had it been otherwise, the message would not have been suited to the grasp of the readers, especially at that time, or to the comprehension of angels. People would not have accepted it, and angels would not have understood it. So that's just a, on a functional level. The way that this particular revelation works is we read it here and understand it in earthly terms. Angels are understanding it spiritually, and that can do it. He says, if it wasn't written in that way, the people think about, you know, whatever, a thousand years ago, they wouldn't have understood it, they couldn't have kept it uh, in use, and we wouldn't have kept the heart going. So it had to be for that historical reason, but then it was also the, the crypticness uh, the cryptozoology of it was to protect us right to make sure that we were safe this is secrets of heaven 3898 8. the lord spoke this way in order to keep people from understanding his words so this was intentional for fear they would profane them if they had understood the message when the church was spiritually devastated they would have profaned it so what does that mean what is profanation we're going to get into that uh, in depth in just a minute, but let's look at a couple other images that he gives of ways to survive this crisis. So he talks about the housetop. He says, "...let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house." So what does that mean? You know, stay up there, even if you have like a really nice tunic in there. Now this is talking about the people motivated by the good impulses of neighborly love were not to turn from that to matters of religious doctrine." So a house is a symbol of the mind or of ideas. So if you are already above the house, if you knew love's what's important despite the differences in ideas or doctrine, don't go back and get entangled in that stuff because you won't survive. You'll, you'll start to mix the good with the bad, which is detrimental. uh, Jesus also talks about the clothing in the field. He says, Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. So is this just saying that it's so sudden? Why does he give all these examples? Why doesn't Jesus just say, It's going to happen quick, you know, go. It's because each of these examples mean something in particular. This one, meaning people motivated by the good that truth advocates, were not to turn from that aspect of truth to a doctrinal truth. Truth. So if you had a living concept of what was good and you had a worldview based on that, don't then go erode it by learning these sort of um, the, the fabricated ideas. Just Just go with what is working for you because the whole thing is falling apart anyway. So all this was to warn people so that they wouldn't end up committing profanation, because if you do these things, you start to be in danger of that. So what is profanation? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus would even change the way he speaks about things to avoid it Swedenborg goes into some detail, Secrets of Heaven 3398. Again, you can download these books, read all the surrounding numbers. We've actually compiled them for you. I'll show you where to get it at the end of the show. Divine truth can be profaned only by people who have already acknowledged it. After all, they first entered on the truth by acknowledging and believing in it, which means they were initiated into it. Later, if they back away from it, a trace remains permanently imprinted on them deep inside, and it returns when falsity and evil are recalled. The truth clinging to the falsity and evil is then profaned. So the people in whom this happens always have something in them that damns them, a private hell. When hellish beings go near an environment in which goodness, goodness and truth exist, they instantly become aware of their hell, because they are entering that, what they hate and therefore what tortures them. So people who profane truth live constantly with a source of torment according to the magnitude of their profanation. Because of this, the Lord takes the greatest care to prevent divine goodness and truth from being profaned. With people who cannot help profaning what is true and good, his main method is to keep them as far as possible from acknowledging and believing in it. Again, the only people who can profane something are those who once acknowledged and believed it. So there's a lot of words. Essentially, it means profanation, according to Swedenborg, is you... Learn the truth. You loved it. You acknowledged that you lived it. Then you turned around and decided, "Oh, I'm just going to use this truth to harm people or to get ahead." You know, I'm I'm going to apply evil to this truth, and that's really a problem because it really messes up your system and just causes. Because then you can really deceive people. You can lead them astray. It's just a really, really heinous thing. Swedenborg goes on in Secrets of Heaven 3, 3, 9, 8, 3 to four. This is why deep truth was not revealed to Jacob's descendants in Israel and Judah. It was not even said to them explicitly that people have a deeper level or that such a thing as inward worship exists. They were barely told anything about life after death or about what the heavenly kingdom or about the heavenly kingdom of the Lord. It was foreseen that if these concepts had been revealed to them, they could not have helped profaning them because all they were interested in were earthly concerns. Furthermore, that was why the Lord did not come into the world and disclose the inner contents of the Word until nothing good whatever remained to those people, not even earthly goodness. At that point, they were no longer able to accept, to the point of acknowledging it, accept truth to the point of acknowledging it internally, since goodness is what accepts truth, so they could not profane it. Those are the conditions meant by the fullness of time, the close of the age, and the last day mentioned many times in the prophets. The reason the secrets of the words' inner meaning are now being disclosed, meaning as Swedenborg writes them, is the same. There is hardly any faith today because there is no neighborly love, so the era has reached its close. When this happens, secrets can be revealed without danger of profanation because they are not inwardly acknowledged. Essentially, he's saying, it's okay for me to write all this stuff now and let it, the cat out of the bag because no one's going to believe it anyway. The, the mindset of humanity is so devastated that, that people just aren't going to believe it. And he was right. I mean, people were very slow to adopt and, and grab onto these ideas as anything valuable, if, if you could even say people are doing that these days. But he's... So essentially... It's all protection so that there's not profanation. So that there's... it's These deep secrets are only revealed plainly when people won't just use those in a twisted way that actually almost destroys themselves. Now, some people who read, who read Swedenborg get worried, like, oh, am I committing profanation? Have I done this? Have I got... You, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Right? That's that's the premise. Um, profanation is like a willful, perpetual, I know what is true, and I'm going to use it to harm people. I don't care. I mean, that it's not something that if you're like, oh, I, I once believed this, but then I kind of backslid, and that's that's not profanation. It's this very, very intentional, perpetual thing. It's not something you just slip into. So if you're worried about it, don't worry about it. Jesus goes on from this description to these, these sort of... Um, almost uh, bizarre and cruel-sounding um, warnings, the first of which is most so, which he's, almost sounds like he's saying he's going to punish pregnant people. So what, what is that all about? Here's the, the quote itself. He says, "...but alas to those who are pregnant or nursing in those days." Like, it's just, oh, sorry, man, I'm ending it, you you shouldn't have gotten pregnant. What's that mean? Swedenborg says the internal sense is people who receive heavenly goodness and truth during end times would be in great danger of profanation. So if you're just starting to have this, like, spiritual awakening, but around you are all these false ideas, you absorb these you absorb these evil desires, this mixing, it's trouble. So God was preventing, was putting people on hold till the whole thing blew over. Winter is a similar kind of thing. Pray, though, that your flight not happen in winter. So what is this, like, hopefully the world doesn't end in winter? We're not, you know, choose your hemisphere? Is that what you got to do? No, it's about this internal dynamic. During the end times, hell would try to pervert spiritual goodness and truth by attaching the coldness of faith without kindness, and resulting aversion to kindness. And then finally, the warning about the Sabbath. It says, pray though that your flight not happen on the Sabbath. So what does that mean? It's got a meaning like all the other ones. During the end times, hell would try to pervert spiritual goodness and truth by using the fervor of external holiness fueled by selfish and worldly pursuits." Like, it's sort of a substitute that, hey, if we just get, we're all enthusiastic about this, we're really riled up, that's the true devotion to it, and, but you're putting out these false ideas. You've got this twisted sort of version of Christianity where it's, it's about the show and about the devotion, but you're devoted to these ideas that are not the ideals that, that Jesus was advocating. And so there's there was like a falling out of belief in the Christian Church. There still is, and you might think, "Oh, that's part of the the K." But actually, allowing this widespread belief is a part of the process. This is like a a, a good thing to be happening. Secrets of Heaven three three nine nine. During a church's final stage, disbelief in the Lord and life after death and in the inner self pervades their whole being. And when it does, it keeps religious truth from penetrating their surface. What is all pervasive in an individual restrains and prohibits such things from entering more deeply. Although the people in whom this is happening do not realize it, and or even imagine that they are believers. So there's this, like, you think you believe, but you don't, you sort of fall off. Uh, there's a superficial belief, and that's fine because it's actually keeping you safe, you know. But remember that fig tree. You remember the fig tree? That means that even while all this stuff is crumbling, there are people, sometimes the same people, sometimes different people, are just saying, okay, without that, how do we be good? How do we just do what's good? And this is sort of building up the ground for a new church, which we can talk about. Uh, We have talked about other times. Jesus gives another image, though, back to sort of the grim stuff. It's about eagles, and he says... "Um." false Christs and false prophets will arise and do great signs and portents to lead astray, for wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles also gather." And to be fair, Swedenborg's been called a, a false prophet uh, a number of times, and we'll get to that, but let's look at the internal sense of the whole thing. False, ungodly... So in, in light of that, false, ungodly teachings will arise in theology. Scripture will be twisted to support lifeless doctrinal doctrine justified by rational arguments. So what is this lifeless doctrine and how do you spot it? Like I said, some people say hey, Swedenborg is is one of these false prophets that they are that, that Jesus is warning about. But they Swedenborg is countering by saying no, that the false prophet is to teach something in Jesus's name that doesn't go with what Jesus actually was like. So with any source, Swedenborg or other, if you want to try to vet are they are they false prophet? Look at what Jesus was like and what he did and then compare it to what they're teaching. So what was Jesus like? In case you don't want to have to read it for yourself, here's a little summary. Uh, What Jesus taught, be merciful, make peace, let your light shine, look honestly inside yourself, be willing to change, don't judge and condemn, love everyone including enemies, forgive, reconcile with each other, be generous, be humble, trust God, Focus on things that last forever. Those are all obviously paraphrases, but that's, that's go. If you read the text, we're not traveling far from what he said. We're not traveling at all from what he said. That is, and he repeats those things multiple times. And you look at the actions of Jesus Christ. What did he do? He healed, he forgave, he taught, he loved, he urged people to examine their hearts. He's often calling people to look, what are you like? He met people where they were, though. The woman caught in adultery comes to mind. Reaching out to all people, including those who are marginalized or rejected by society, taxed, Collectors, prostitutes. He comforted people and offered them hope. So that's what he does. If you, if you find a source and you're wondering, is this a false teaching? Does it match up with that? Is it advocating the same thing? You guys can look through Swedenborg's material. Do you think they are from the same source, or is it false? That, that's up to you. So, if we got all that, so that's the dynamic that, that Jesus is describing. This whole, um, you know there's going to be all this problem, but then he does talk about there is going to be the second coming of Christ. He predicts his own second coming. That That is something that Swedenborg says, yeah, that that's really going to happen, but how is that going to happen, right? What's that going to look like? What is this second coming? This is important. If you have been asleep for this last part, that's the stamp, that's our official seal of this is important, because this is describing How do we look for the second coming of Jesus Christ? If it's not coming in the physical clouds and pulling people up and being like the left behind series and killing everybody else, what is it? This is Secrets of Heaven 3900, where Swedenborg describes what the Lord's coming will be like. He says, the Lord's coming will not be his literal reappearance in in the world, but his presence in every individual. This coming takes place every time the gospel is preached, every time something, someone thinks about something holy. So it's a, it's a personal second coming. The first coming was Jesus. The second coming is when he's inside you. You may say, who is Swedenborg to make a statement as provocative and assertive as that? All right, you don't like Swedenborg. Maybe you like Jesus. Jesus Christ said the same thing. Here he is in Luke 17.
4: Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, When is God's kingdom coming? He answered them and said, God's kingdom does not come in an observable way, nor will they say, look here or look there, because look, God's kingdom is within you.
0: God's kingdom is within you. They're saying, saying, when do we expect? It's like, that is not correspondence. I mean, that is very plain language. There is a correspondence, but he's saying, they're asking him, when does this kingdom of God come? He's going to say, people are going to say, it's going to come over there, it's going to come over there. It's inside you. The second coming of Jesus is inside you. And if it's inside you, it's inside me, it's inside everybody. We're all different. It's in different ways right? So perhaps uh, the diversity of religious practices, even the diversity of Christian traditions, maybe that's not so bad, because maybe this is different ways that this second coming happens for people. And we did have, this was the last comment from Dr. Lawrence about the, uh, the traditions and how they match up.
3: Christianity has become a very flexible faith tradition when we look at this history. It's able to express itself in all kinds of Um, uh, liturgical ways, worshipful ways, uh, and ways of of, uh, expressing the ideas to the questions of meaning and purpose that are in that culture. So is it a bad thing that Christianity has so much doctrinal diversity or so much diversity? On the one hand, it's often been thought that all of these different movements within Christianity is the scandal of Christianity, that um, there must be one true way, and uh, and ha- that there are so many expressions, how can you believe any of them? Another viewpoint that, though, uh, is often expressed on this point is that there's something profoundly elemental in Christianity that allows it to s- itself to be protean. That means that it's able to take uh, shape and voice in many different uh, styles of culture so that it's able to uh, bring its message um, in uh, strikingly successful ways uh, to all kinds of groups and situations. That message, uh, the reason why that message might be so protean is that it personifies God in a very human accessible form in Jesus Christ and emphasizes a message of love for the neighbor and of eternal life. So what's not to like in that? And it has sold rather well uh, internationally.
0: We haven't even gotten to some of the most famous potent imagery from Jesus's speech in Matthew 24, but we're not going to leave you hanging. We're going to get to that right now in part four. <laughs> Saw the thumbnail, I mean the intro for this whole show, you saw the the sun and the moon and the stars falling. That's that's some of the the most recognizable imagery of this end time stuff. And this we now are going to delve into that. And what does that mean? Again, of course, it's correspondential. And you have people point to that as, oh, see, obviously, people who wrote the Bible didn't know they were talking about because they think stars can fall to the earth uh, when stars are many, many times larger, and it would really be the earth falling to the star, if you will. But Swedenborg says this is not meant to be literal imagery at all, but yet it doesn't mean it's devoid of meaning. So this is a video taken from his Secrets of Heaven 4060 where he explains what it means
4: the sun will go dark and the moon will not shed its light symbolizes love for the Lord the Sun and charity for one's neighbor the moon and going dark and not shedding its light means that they will not be visible they will disappear the reason for this symbolism of Sun and moon is that in the other world the Lord appears as a Sun to the inhabitants of heaven who love him the heavenly and as a moon to the inhabitants who treat their neighbor with charity, the spiritual. The sun and moon in the heavens, that is, the Lord, never go dark or lose their light, but are always shining. Neither does love for him fade among the heavenly, nor charity for one's neighbor among the spiritual in the heavens. On earth they do not fade among people who have heavenly and spiritual angels with them, or in other words, among people who possess love and charity. No, they are extinguished among people devoid of love and charity who love themselves and their worldly advantages instead, and who therefore seethe with hatred and vengefulness. These people bring the darkness on themselves. The case resembles that of the earthly sun, which shines constantly, though it is not visible when clouds block it and the stars will fall down from the sky means that knowledge of goodness and truth will die. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken symbolizes the foundations of the church. They are said to shake and tremble when that knowledge dies. The church on earth is the foundation of heaven because the stream of goodness and truth flowing through the heavens from the Lord reaches its final destination in the good urges and true ideas of people in the church. So when the attitude of people in the church is so contrary that they refuse to let goodness and truth influence them anymore, the powers of the heavens are said to be shaken. The Lord, as a result, always provides that some trace of the church remain, and that a new church be established when the old one dies. And
0: remember, back to the beginning, we're talking about this specific area that, of the church that has this revelation, that performs this function. doesn't mean that those are the only good people in the world. Uh, doesn't mean those are even the best people in the world, but it's just part of the whole mechanism. So Swedenborg continues on this in Secrets of Heaven 4060. Uh, he says, and then the sign of the Son of humankind will appear in the sky, means that divine truth will then make an appearance. The sign means its emergence. The Son of humankind means the Lord in regard to divine truth. This manifestation or sign is what the disciples asked about when they said to the Lord, tell us when these things will happen, especially what the sign of your coming in the close of the age will be. They knew from the word that the Lord would come when the era ended, and they knew from the Lord that he would come again. This they took to mean that he would come into the world once more, since they did not yet realize that he comes whenever a church has been spiritually devastated. He does not come in person as he did when he clothed himself in humanity by being born and made his humanity divine. Rather, he comes by emerging either in visible ways, as when he appeared to Abraham in Mamre, or Marm, or something like that, to Moses in the Bramble, to the Israelite people on Mount Sinai, then to Joshua when he entered the land of Canaan, or in less visible ways, as in the kind of inspiration that produced the Word. He also comes by means of the Word in which he is present, since everything in the Word is from him and about him. So, there also, though, there is plenty more vivid imagery to come, including, as we mentioned before, the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man appearing in the clouds of heaven. So what what were these clouds of heaven and were they too uh, a correspondence? Oh, spoiler alert, yeah, they were. This is from Secrets of Heaven 4060.
4: And they will see the Son of humankind coming in the clouds of the heavens with power and great glory means that the inner meaning of the word, which contains the Lord, will then be revealed. The sun of humankind means divine truth in the word. The cloud stands for the literal meaning. Power is an attribute of the goodness there and glory of the truth. The Lord's coming in this way is what is meant here, not a literal future appearance by him in the clouds. He will send angels out with a trumpet and a loud voice symbolizes being chosen, not by visible angels, let alone with trumpets and loud voices, but by sacred goodness and truth streaming in from the Lord through the angels. In this instance, they symbolize what comes from the Lord and tells about Him. The trumpet and loud voice symbolize spreading the good news, as they do elsewhere in the Word. And they will gather His chosen people from the four winds, from the end of the heavens right to the end of them, symbolizes the establishment of a new church the chosen people are those with the goodness that comes of love and faith. The four winds from which they will be gathered mean all phases of goodness and truth. The end of the heavens to the end of them means the inner depths and the outer surface of the church.
0: So we're talking about the word a lot. And by that Swedenborg means the Bible, but it's also something more than that because the the. The Word itself is not just text, it's this living thing sort of behind it that's taken all these different forms. Uh, Even Swedenborg's concepts are just to try to get us to that living sense. This is from Swedenborg's Journal of Spiritual Experiences, number 1877, where he makes the shocking claim that the Word of the Lord in itself is dead, for it is only a letter, but in the person reading it, it is vivified by the Lord in the measure of each one's ability to understand and perceive with which he or she is gifted by the Lord. So it is alive in the measure of the life of the person reading it, for which reason there is countless variety. These words were written in the presence of angels. Just just so you guys know. I wrote these when the angels were around. So everybody... It's not that the, the meaning is all wrapped up in the text. Everybody through that can get their own connection. It's different in different ways. That is that is this living thing that is called the Word. All right, And in the Word... Jesus the speech of Jesus gives us a couple more images that we want to look at here. One uh he talks about the the generation passing away. He says, "Truly I will I say to you this generation will not pass away till all these things happen," which has been very confusing to people because many generations have passed. Even with Swedenborg's uh, assertion that he was talking about the end of the Christian church, that happened a lot later. So what does that mean? Swedenborg says that the Jewish religion will remain to preserve the Old Testament, or the Torah, that it's not just like there's this progression of churches, but it's not like the ones that came before, okay, we don't need them anymore. The reverence and the study of the Torah was this essential element to the whole thing, so you know, some people thought, okay, the end of that church, it would get wiped out, but no, it continues and it thrives, and it continues to be this part of the, the whole connection. Jesus then moves on to talk about heaven and earth passing away. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, heaven and earth is not talking about the physical. It's talking about the spiritual. The inner core and outer surface of the previous religion will disappear, but the Lord's word will remain. And now we've made our way, finally, to this imagery that that inspired sort of the left behind series that I mentioned before, one person is sucked up and another one stays, and Swedenborg has commentary on this in Secrets of Heaven 4334, uh, numbers eight and nine, and it's really about how you can't tell from the outside, what's going on. It says two will then be in the field, one will be taken and one left, symbolizes people in the church devoted to goodness and people in the church devoted to evil. Those devoted to goodness will be saved and those devoted to evil will be damned. Two grinding in the mill, one will be taken and one left, means that people in the church who focus on truth or desire truth for good reasons will be saved, while people in the church who focus on truth or desire truth for bad reasons will be damned." So, I uh, and it, for more discussion on what it means to be damned according to Swedenborg, see our other shows. Essentially, it's it's a it's something that we choose if it, if we so want it. It's not the same kind of punishment as you would think. The takeaway there is you can't tell. You can't tell by somebody's external life, by their religious practices or lack thereof what they really have on the inside. So you can both be in the same field or the same activities in life but but somebody loves what's really good. Is somebody only loves their own advantages? Pretty bleak picture overall. It's Jesus is predicting this fall and everything. The heart of the of the human race is going to get sick and die. But there is hope because there is this potential for a spiritual heart transplant. This is Secrets of Heaven four two two three. When a church has been devastated, or in other words, when it no longer does the good required by faith, it perishes mainly in terms of its inner state, so it perishes mainly in regard to its state in the other world. Heaven then detaches from the people of that church, as does the Lord, and shifts to another group of people whom it adopts in their place. This is because heaven has no means of contact with humankind in the church if the church does not exist somewhere on earth." The church is like the heart and lungs of the universal human on Earth, and that's what we were getting at before. That's the importance of the whole thing. All right, what do we got next? Um, I think we're going to go to our next section. Is that it? All right, we're moving on. We got part five because we got to—if we can have this sort of uh, surviving this heart transplant, how do we participate in that? You know, how do we do that? Um, we're going to learn right now. Jesus is not who a lot of people have uh, made him out to be. Uh, He's not this big judge who's going to come and harm people. He has language that's intimidating, but you know, you can even see this in the way that he acts towards people, uh, the the way that he behaves towards them, the way he treats them. God is love, right? God is love. And this, but it's not like Jesus can just come to anybody. We have to open this path. And actually, Jesus gives instructions, and this is like right after this speech in Matthew 24, the beginning of Matthew 25, he tells this parable about how we can have this way ready, so that when the se- this internal second coming happens, we have a, a, a ready receptacle for the whole thing. It's the parable of the ten virgins, sometimes translated, the ten young women. We'll stick with that one here. The story goes like this, So there are these ten young women. Uh, They're waiting to be part of a wedding celebration. They each had an oil lamp to bring with them to the wedding. Five of the young women were called wise because they brought with them oil to put in their lamps. However, there were five other women who were not bringing oil in their lamps, and they were, it's harsh, but they were called foolish because they came without any oil to put in the lamp. So already it seems strange. Like it's pretty harsh to label somebody wise or foolish based on this one. They both at least had the lamp. Isn't that good enough? Do you really gotta have the oil too? What if they were were you know hasty getting out the door? This is a correspondence. And we're gonna we're gonna display this correspondence in 3D to you because we actually have our own oil lamps right here. Camera two. Okay, look at that. All right, so I'm here. This is real. This is live. I'm wiggling my fingers. All right, we have these two lamps, and there's a difference. These are are replicas of the kind of lamps that would be used in this story. We're kind enough to have someone lend them to us. This one is a lamp. It's great, but it's empty. You know, there's no oil in that one, but you have this. This is just olive oil here, which has a great correspondence, by the way. This lamp is full of it. This physical situation here tells the whole story of why Jesus' coming works in people who prepared the way and why it doesn't in others. So, what you have here is the wick. Uh, it don't catch. If there's not oil, uh, it's not going to burn. Now, this, here's all the, the characters. The lamp is your faith or your idea system. This is your truths that you know, and the oil is, you guessed it, love or charity, or that kind of thing. So if you don't have love, then you can't accept the coming of God. So here you have the coming of the Lord, like that. That's the fire of love. Now you can see there's a big difference. This one, we don't have that oil, so we do have a smoke detector. If we suddenly cut feed, it's because the police and the fire department are here. Look, so I try to light that up, it just singes out. It doesn't light at all, because truth on its own, without love, can't accept the coming of the Lord. But this one over here, that's been saturated with this oil, with this love, initially does not burn either, but you give it a little go here, and suddenly it begins to take. And because there's this oil coursing through, not only does it burn now, but it continues to burn and burn and burn, and it can provide light. This one's just a little coal and some smoke, but this one can provide light and heat and warmth. Another way to look at this whole metaphor is the, uh, the, if this is truth, the flame, you need love to let it burn. So this, you have to have this love. That's why it mattered. That's what this whole parable of the virgins was, or the young women was trying to portray, so, let's go back to our story here. Uh we had we had this period where everybody fell asleep. So, there's these these two women there you see them sleeping here um and this is also symbolic. Um and it's they fell asleep because it's it takes a long time for the bridegroom to arrive, right? So he he takes his time and yeah, you'd think right, it does. So, you know, they get bored, they fall asleep. The ten young women are all of us, and they're all of us in regards to our, um, our uh, love side. The twelve disciples were in accord with our faith, but the uh, women are in accord with our love side. The sleeping means two different things, though, because both the wise and the foolish slept. The sleeping is doubt about spiritual reality while we're waiting for some obvious coming of God or heaven. The foolish sleeping is those who doubt and deny, and so don't bo- bother to cultivate love towards others. I don't think there's anything greater out there, so whatever, we're just going to forget about it. But the wise sleeping is people who may doubt, who may have the same level of, hey, I don't know if there's anything bigger out there, but we're going to meanwhile cultivate love toward other human beings. So then when the bridegroom does show up, uh, you have these people, you know, it's midnight, it says at midnight he showed up, all the young women wake wake up, those with oil in their lamps were ready to receive the presence, but it doesn't always work that way. You see in the background there, we'll get to them in a second, the bridegroom arriving for the wedding is the coming or presence of the Lord, which is heaven, which is heaven is a marriage between us and God, but those in the background haven't made this effort to cultivate love with their faith that can receive that presence. So we gotta have this thing ready to receive, or else we're not gonna be able to catch in this same way. So we, they they tried to beg oil from others, but it couldn't happen, because you can't get the ability to love people from other people. You gotta get it from yourself. So that's the parable of the ten young women. Um, So what we're gonna do here. Is take a look at this on our own. Um, the the message is that in hard times you still got to practice charity. If things get tough, that's not when you say, okay, well I can't love anymore. Because that's the time when we're really it's what we're really made of. You know, uh, that's the time when we can really cement this love. No, I'm gonna even in the face of you think about the great things people that Martin Luther King was like. Even when there's hatred coming at us, we're gonna live in love. So Matthew 25 begins with this parable and ends with this other parable about love that we cover in our show, How to Love. If you're looking at how do I fill my lamp with oil, you check out this one. We also have another show that lays it out, simply three simple ways to love everyone, just in case you may be perfectly good at it. But let's have these ideas in the mind of the oil and the lamp being a symbol of being ready to receive the love from God. And we're going to do this quick Show a video of an oil lamp burning, and we're gonna um, you imagine on your own w- what this is a physical image of this spiritual phenomenon of being ready to accept the divine and the ready to, to have this second coming happen in you and just see what you get out of it. So, we'll just have a few seconds here with some music for a little correspondence's meditation. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, sometimes to see it in pictures makes a difference to me. I get like, oh, that's something. And you can go practice that correspondence and everything. You learned a mountain is about love. Go see the mountains. Do they teach you anything about love? We've tried to teach you today. We know it's a ton of information. Just in case you wanted more information, check out the description of this, because we have a document in there that you can go to, which has all these quotes and things. So if you really want to study up on this more, you can do it. Otherwise, and if so, please like and subscribe. If you do that, then this video, this long video, will get out to other people, and hopefully they can have um, some kind of baffling, positive experience with it. And if you want to help make this kind of programming possible, you can. We'll get to your questions in a second, but first, here's a little bit about why we as a nonprofit, need donations to keep doing what we're doing.
4: We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up though is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.
0: Yeah, we still are going to do questions, even though we run a little bit long. I know uh, we'll give you double your money's worth here. We're just going to take a look at three today. I know that won't be all of them, but uh, hopefully... You guys have answered each other in the chat, or you can post them later. We'll try to get to them. All right, let's see what the questions are today. First one, Francisco, I understand that there is no end of the world described in the Bible according to Swedenborg, but does Swedenborg say something about the real end of the world, or if that is going to happen someday? Um, The answer is, Swedenborg makes no predictions about the end of the physical world. He doesn't say the earth is going to become biologically inhabitable or be swallowed by the sun or anything like that. He doesn't mention that. However, he does talk about sort of the end of the world in the spiritual world. It's not the end of the world, but something much more dramatic happened, accompanying all this stuff we've been talking about here in the spiritual world, and we are going to get to that in our show on The Last Judgment. Swedenborg says this Last Judgment was a spiritual thing. It was this giant clash between uh, the heavens had been overrun by the hells, everyone had to get sorted and moved, and there was these sort of spiritual wars, and a lot sort of like the actual stars falling that you hear of in Jesus' speech, and we are going to get to that in an upcoming episode. So that's our that's our best uh that's our that's our um, offering is to say we're going to do it we're going to do it sometime but great question next one Miss Adler Holmes what is the driving force of all this disunity in human ideologies is it simply a natural result of the immense diversity in backgrounds traits or is this unrest serving towards collective growth right uh, according to Swedenborg, it would be the, the driving force, uh, there's two primary uh, afflictions that plague humankind. One is love of, love of self or love of what's your own, and the other is love of the world or love of gratification. When you become God in your mind, you are the greatest good in your own mind, you start to desire everything that belongs to everyone else, you harm them, um, selfishness, we call it, or or megalomania, or something like that. That is constantly trying to gain access. And then love of the world is just, the, you know, the world exists to, to make me happy, and, and how can I... greed would come out of that. Those two evils are the driving force between all these divisions. Swedenborg says, when those are not there, when there is actual love for other people at the base of it, it doesn't matter how different your ideas are, you don't clash violently. He says that in the ancient days, in the most ancient church, there was, or the ancient church, I mean, the second phase, there was a big diversity of ideas and doctrines, but they all knew love was the most important thing, so they didn't clash, they didn't fight. Even you see some of that in the early Christian world, there's some differing, but there's not this same fighting. So really... It's that, it's the heart of evil that's causing the problems. You could have, you know, 14 million different religions in the world. If everybody knew love was what was important, we'd all get along just fine. The unrest is serving towards collective growth. I mean, this is part of a process of purging ourselves of these evils, letting them be seen, reacting against them, making something better. This is sort of, you know, there's individual spiritual growth, this is like the human race's spiritual growth, however, you know, once we get there or in an ideal state, we wouldn't have these kind of clashes. So great question, we got one more that we're going to do. This is Potter, how does Swedenborg feel about self-defense and pacifism? And it, is a Tolstoyan non-resistance encouraged, or can one feel free to defend oneself despite such interpretation of Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, Swedenborg is pretty clear about this. Um, you know, with Jesus, uh, you know, if you're just taking Jesus' word, you, there could be confusion about, like, okay, turn the other cheek, so if somebody is coming in to harm me and my family, do I not resist them? Um, Swedenborg says that within those words and within the totality of the the inner meaning of the word there is room for protecting yourself and others. He actually says you can be acting out of love even if you, uh, you detain somebody, you turn them over to a judge, you strike in self-defense. If you're not seeking their destruction, you're merely seeking to um, keep them from causing harm, and that in the long run, you would be willing to Um, befriend them if they ever came to their senses, right? So that if you don't have this hatred of them, then yeah, you got to, even wars have to, I mean, if there's a situation where a greater evil will happen if there's not uh, some kind of action, Swedenborg certainly doesn't argue for um, uh, blanket pacifism, that there is a place for action to protect, um, but intent intent. It's not about the external action, it's about the intent. If the intent really is only to protect and not to to get revenge and those kinds of things, then you can. That's according to Swedenborg. Everybody has their own little church about it. Thank you so much, everyone, for hanging hanging tough through this complex subject. We wanted to give you a little taste of just how much is in these ideas of Swedenborg's, and hopefully give you a perspective on, this end, or on these end times that Makes some kind of sense in a weird way, you know, it's bizarre, but oh yeah, no wait, that that is a good explanation, and will hopefully set you free of any lingering doubts uh, about the end of the world, and maybe arm you in a conversation about it were you ever to come, and hopefully you pulled something out of it that will help you tonight and tomorrow be kind to yourself and to others and make the world a better place. That's the goal anyway, great to see you all here, join us next week we're going to be away from the warm fuzzies, not that this episode really was, but we're going to talk about the different kinds of evil spirits. We're going to be looking at Swedenborg's travel through these different scary encounters, the beings he he met with and who tried to get him, and what learning about them can do to help us uh, be protected and rid the world of the kind of evil that they represent. So hopefully you'll join us then. See ya.